0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 22nd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new Court of Appeal decision spells out the way to correctly apply the Good Faith Personnel Action Defense in psychiatric cases. In the published opinion of San Francisco Unified School District versus WCAB Cardozo, the Workers' Compensation Administrative Law judge concluded that Linda Cardozo suffered a psychiatric injury caused predominantly by industrial factors. The judge also concluded that lawful, non-discriminatory, good-faith personnel actions constituted less than 35% of all industrial and non-industrial causes of her psychiatric injury. Thus, her claim was not barred by Labor Code Section 3208.3H. San Francisco Unified School District filed a petition for writ of review arguing that the judge should only have considered the total of the industrial causes and disregarded the non-industrial causes when calculating the percentage of the psychiatric injury attributable to good-faith personnel actions. If this argument were correct, it would require a recalculation leading to a denial of compensation to Cardozo. The Court of Appeal First appellate district rejected this argument and affirmed the award. Here's what happened in this case Cardozo was a bilingual elementary school teacher who had worked 20 years for the district. Cardozo claimed her injury was caused by the stress of teaching a class in two languages that combined two grade levels and because of her difficulties with her school's principal. The district, on the other hand, claimed Cardozo's injury was caused by good faith personnel actions such as unsatisfactory performance reviews and written disciplinary warnings and was therefore barred under labor code section 3208.3H. The party selected Dr. Gordon Bombacher as the evaluator to render an opinion on the issue of apportionment as to the industrial and non-industrial factors of disability and as to the extent of the responsibility for Cardozo's current condition that may be attributable to any good-faith, non-discriminatory personnel action. Dr. Bombacher apportioned 15 percent of Cardozo's impairment to factors associated with her personal circumstances and 85% to factors associated with her work setting at Bessie Carmichael School. Dr. Bumbacher also concluded that of the causal factors attributable to Cardozo's employment, 60% were associated with difficulties encountered in daily teaching for over 20 years and 40% were associated with good faith personnel actions. Dr. Bombacher then concluded that 51% of Cardozo's overall impairment would be apportioned to factors regarding classroom teaching. That 51% was 60% of 85% that was industrial. And 34% would be apportioned to factors associated with the principal. That math was 40% of the 85% that was industrial. Accordingly, the judge then found that her psychiatric injury was caused 15% by non-industrial factors, 51% by activities as a classroom teacher, and 34% by personnel actions undertaken by the principal. Since the 34% caused by personnel actions was below the 35% threshold, by one point the case was not barred. The Court of Appeal considered whether the calculation of a substantial cause of good faith personnel actions should be limited to a consideration of only the industrial causes or, on the other hand, should include consideration of the 15% apportioned to non-industrial causes. The court concluded that when read together the plain meaning of Section 3208.3 of the Labor Code is that the entire set of industrial and non-industrial causal factors must be taken into consideration in determining whether or not a psychiatric injury was substantially caused by good faith personnel actions. The Court of Appeal has now ruled on a criminal case involving a claimant's attack on a defense attorney. Here's what happened. In 1983, Malji Patel filed a workers' compensation action against Rockwell International seeking compensation for injuries he allegedly sustained at work. Patel's workers' compensation claim was involved in protracted litigation for over 20 years. In 1991, Rockwell was represented in the workers' compensation action by Attorney Lynn Peterson. In August 1991, Attorney Peterson was at the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board with Mr. Patel, who was representing himself. They were alone in the courtroom, waiting for the judge to emerge from his chambers. Attorney Peterson heard Patel rummaging in a bag. As she turned to look, she found Patel pointing a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic handgun at her. Attorney Peterson shrieked, which caused the judge to emerge from his chambers. The judge dove over a table and tackled Patel, who dropped the weapon, which was later discovered to be unloaded. Based upon this incident, Patel was convicted in 1992 of felony false imprisonment and a special allegation of personal use of a firearm. By 1996, attorney Edwin Nepomucino had taken over Rockwell's representation. Patel was confrontational with Mr. Nupomosino from the onset. Patel was scheduled to attend a medical examination with Mr. Nepomucino present. At the doctor's office, as Mr. Nepomucino finished pouring some coffee, he felt a blow to his left shoulder. Napomasino then ran toward the emergency exit, but ended up being trapped near the elevator. Patel ran after him, holding a hammer, aiming for the defense attorney's head. A witness saw Patel strike the attorney on the head with a hammer at least twice. Office staff ran to assist Mr. Napomasino and restrained Patel until the police arrived. Napomasino was still suffering. After effects from Patel's blows at the time of the criminal trial in 2009, Patel was charged with two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, one assault while inside the office, the second in the hallway. The jury found Patel guilty on both counts. After a sanity hearing, the jury found Patel was sane at the time he committed the offenses. The trial court ordered Patel to pay victim restitution to Mr. Napomasino in the amount of $36,250. The Court of Appeal, in an unpublished opinion, reversed the judgment with respect to two distinct events of assault. The court found it was speculation and conjecture to infer that Patel either harbored multiple objectives or that a continuous course of conduct may be carved up into two separate volitional acts. Punishing Patel for independent counts of assault is not commensurate with his culpability. Nonetheless, Patel was sentenced in May 2009 to 12 years in state prison. The Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals clarified the compensation rate for benefits in longshore cases. Here's what happened. In 2002, Dana Roberts slipped on a patch of ice while working in Alaska for sea land services. Roberts ceased work on March 11, 2002, and sought compensation under Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation Act. Sealand and its insurers stopped paying compensation in May 2005. After hearing, the administrative law judge awarded Roberts additional benefits for 2005, which were calculated using the National Average Weekly Wage for fiscal year 2002, the year Roberts first became disabled. The main controversy in this case was a determination of the correct calculation for the benefits awarded after 2005. Roberts filed a motion for reconsideration of the administrative law judge's decision. The administrative law judge denied the motion, but determined that the national weekly wage for fiscal year 2002 was the wrong maximum rate for the missing 2005 benefits. The judge changed the maximum rate for that period using the national average weekly wage for fiscal year 2006. The Benefits Review Board affirmed the administrative law judge's decision. Roberts petitioned the federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal for review contending that the administrative law judge should have used the national average weekly wage with respect to fiscal year 2007 in calculating the maximum rate. The Ninth Circuit, in the published opinion of Roberts v. Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, disagreed. The applicable maximum rate should have been based on the national average weekly wage for fiscal year 2005, the year when the benefits were due. The Court of Appeal ruled that a Superior Court civil settlement that includes a WCAB claim requires WCAB approval. Here's what happened in the case of Stellar versus Sears-Roebuck and Company. Wendy Steller filed a Superior Court civil action for disability discrimination against Sears. She claimed that Sears had failed to reinstate her with reasonable accommodation to her disability upon termination of her workers' compensation leave of absence. She was concurrently pursuing a workers' compensation case for the same back injury. The parties were represented by different counsel, however, before the WCAB. The Superior Court parties attended a mandatory settlement conference in the Superior Court case. After discussing settlement both in and out of chambers, Steller's counsel announced in open court that his client accepted Respondent's CCP 998 $95,000 statutory settlement offer and the matter was settled. Later, the Superior Court lawyers had a disagreement with respect to whether or not the settlement included or excluded the WCAB claim. Motions were then filed in Superior Court to resolve this dispute and enter judgment. The trial court ruled that the language of the CCP 998 offer to allow judgment, which was the basis of the settlement between the parties, unambiguously applied to all claims relating to applicants' employment, including the workers' compensation claim. A formal, former, formal, whoa, formal Superior Court order followed this ruling, stating that the workers' compensation claim was included in the settlement. The Court of Appeal, in a published opinion, agreed that the settlement included both the disability discrimination and workers' compensation claims. However, the settlement agreement could not compromise or release Appellants' workers' compensation claim without the approval of the WCAB. Both the trial court and the parties are presumed to have known that a settlement of the workers' compensation claim would require the WCAB's approval. The Court of Appeal held that when the parties seek to settle both a civil action and a related workers' compensation claim at a superior court settlement conference, it must be conditional upon WCAB approval. This is a practical practical, and workable solution to the procedural difficulty presented. The Superior Court settlement was therefore conditional upon WCAB's approval of the settlement of the workers' compensation claim. If the WCAB does not grant its approval, the settlement agreement shall be of no force and effect. And in regulatory news, some of the CMS Section 111 Mandatory Reporting Obligations for industrial insurance carriers have again been delayed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Section 111 of the Medicare, Medicaid, and SCHIP Extension Act of 2007 adds new mandatory reporting requirements for workers' compensation administrators and others. This reporting law was passed in 2005 in order to ensure that Medicare remains the secondary payer when a Medicare beneficiary has medical expenses that fall under the primary responsibility of a liability, no fault, or workers' comp insurance plan, including those that are self-insured. Under current law, Medicare can recover any conditional payment it has made that should have been paid by the primary insurance plan. The first scheduled implementation date of the mandatory reporting law was July 1, 2009. However, there have been delays in implementation of these reporting requirements for various reasons. Earlier, CMS had postponed reporting mandates under the bill from last April to January 2011. The CMS has now again delayed some of the reporting requirements until January 2012. According to officials at the American Insurance Association, the delay will apply to claims that do not involve ongoing medical responsibility. The American Insurance Association, or AIA, has been negotiating with CMS for another delay for liability claims that do not involve ongoing medical responsibility. Officials from AIA are pleased that CMS decided to push back the reporting deadline until more specific guidelines can be provided on several outstanding issues. AIA believes there is need for serious and continued dialogue with the many issues that are still unresolved in the application of Section 111 to these claims. AIA remains committed to working with CMS to successfully implement Section 111's reporting requirement for the difficult and unique context of liability claims. Department of Industrial Relations Director John Duncan declared a default of the Contractors' Access Program of California, or CAP, a self-insured group, due to insufficient funding required for continued operation. Mr. Duncan believes this was a necessary step to protect injured workers employed by CAP and to ensure that they will not suffer an interruption in their workers' compensation claim payments. The default means that the Self-Insurers Security Fund, or SISF, is now responsible to ensure timely payment of workers' compensation benefits to injured workers covered by the group. The self insurers security fund established by the legislature is responsible for managing the collective liabilities of workers' compensation claims arising when private self-insured employers or groups become insolvent. The group's security deposit, as well as their security bond, will be transferred to SISF, who will immediately assume responsibilities of administering these claims. In April of this year, DIR's Office of Self-Insurance Plans had requested that CAP file weekly financial reports. And in May, Bickmore Risk Services and Consulting was appointed conservator to manage the group's financial affairs, including claims, disbursement, and other payables. The CAP administrator prior to the conservatorship was New York-based Compensation Risk Managers, also known as CRM. CRM or its subsidiaries have been hit with three state probes and eight lawsuits in New York. There's also a stockholder suit, plus a suit in California and the potential for other suits to be filed. CRM is now known as Majestic Capital Limited. And in financial news, the Liberty Mutual CEO claims that workers' compensation is a time bomb for insurers. Edmund Ted Kelly, whose company has historically sold a substantial amount of workers' compensation coverage, said at a conference in New York that Liberty Mutual is now reducing exposure to the sector out of fear policies sold now will be more expensive than most insurers anticipate when claims are submitted in later years. He said that inflation is the biggest threat to this industry and all property casualty coverage. He's worried about 2014 and 2015, Mr. Kelly said that industry-wide workers' compensation coverage is already being sold at a loss with a combined ratio of 119. Combined ratios are a measure of underwriting profit, and numbers over 100 indicate the company is paying more in claims than it is taking in by way of premiums. But insurers also earn money from investing the premiums until they need to pay claims insurers are beginning to suffer as they invest in fixed income securities paying very low interest rates. But, Mr. Kelly said, he was really optimistic in the future because the troubles he predicted if they come to pass would present opportunities for stronger companies to buy weaker ones. In a separate presentation at the conference, John Doyle, The president and CEO of AIG U.S. Property Casualty Operations said his unit had also cut back on how much workers' compensation coverage it sells. AIG now has annual premiums of about $800 million compared with $3 billion in 2007 workers' compensation premium. And in other news, the California Division of Workers' Compensation opened registration for its 18th annual educational conference. The conference will take place February 24 and 25 at the Los Angeles Sheridan Gateway Hotel and February 28 through March 1 at the Oakland Marriott City Center Hotel. This annual event is the largest workers' compensation training in the state and allows claims administrators, attorneys, medical providers, and others to learn about the most recent developments. The DWC expects 800 registrants and 50 exhibitors at each location. The DWC encourages attendees and exhibitors to register early. A partial list of scheduled topics includes EAMS, present and future, return to work, case law update, the WCAB reconsideration process, audit procedures, and what every adjuster should know, fee schedules, utilization review, medical provider network update, and regulatory changes, apportionment, benefit notices, and a DEU rating workshop. Net proceeds from this event, if any, go to the International Workers' Compensation Foundation. The California Applicants Attorneys Association 2011 Winter Convention will be held in San Diego at the Sheraton Hotel and Marina this January 20th through 23rd. Scheduled speakers include judicial and legal experts as well as raiders and medical specialists. Activities during the convention include a 5K run walk, tennis, and golf tournaments. These activities and child daycare are available for additional fees. Registration and hotel information as well as vendor and exhibitor information is available on the California Applicants Attorneys Association website. Golden Eagle Insurance, a Liberty Mutual Agency regional company, has appointed Spencer Duncan to serve as President and CEO. Mr. Duncan joins Golden Eagle from Liberty Mutual Agency Corporation's regional companies group where he was Senior Vice President of Agency Management. Mr. Donkin joined Liberty Mutual Group in 2008 with the company's acquisition of Safeco Insurance. His insurance career spans more than 25 years, beginning with Safeco Insurance in 1985 as a commercial lines underwriter and rising to Senior Vice President of Sales between 2006 and 2008. Mr. Donkin will be based in Golden Eagle's Insurance Home Office in San Diego. Golden Eagle Insurance offers commercial property and casualty products, including workers' compensation insurance in California through appointed independent agents. The company is headquartered in San Diego with regional offices in Aliso Viejo and Walnut Creek. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please stop by again next week for more news.